Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton. I have been very busy this past week because July 19th was the anniversary of the revolution, the Sandinista revolution in Nicaragua. So I've been very busy and I wanted to fit in my weekly episode this Friday night. There aren't going to be as many people on, I know, but there are a lot of things I wanted to talk about. And if there are some people with questions, I can try to respond to them. But the first thing I want to talk about is, as always, the latest in the new Cold War and this report that the U.S. really keeps trying to start a war with China while already waging a war on Russia via Ukraine. There are these reports that the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, is going to go to Taiwan in a provocative act that basically states that the U.S. government declares that Taiwan is an independent country, despite the fact that China has repeatedly said this is their red line. This violates everything that the U.S.-China relationship is diplomatically based on, at least on paper, going back to the 1970s. The only reason the People's Republic of China normalized relations with the United States in 1972, when meaning when Richard Nixon went to China, although he signed the agreements later on, the so-called three communiques. The only reason China agreed to do that is because the United States said that it recognized that Taiwan was part of China. So the U.S. for years now has been sending weapons to Taiwan. We know that the U.S. has military personnel in Taiwan trading separatist forces. And now sending a top U.S. official from the, from the government's party. This is not an opposition politician acting against the U.S. government. This is clearly being coordinated by the White House at the top levels of the Biden administration. Sending this top official to Taiwan is essentially the U.S. government declaring that it declares Taiwan to be an independent country, which is basically saying that the U.S. government does not recognize the legitimacy of the Chinese government and that it's willing to start a war with China. Joe Biden himself has repeatedly said that if China takes military action to prevent these separatists in Taiwan, then the U.S. is going to militarily intervene. So the only logical conclusion you can come to this is that the U.S. is willing to fight a war with China over Taiwan. Because at every single level, it's not Beijing, it's Washington that continues to escalate. And you really have to ask how insane these people are in Washington. They're already waging a war, a proxy war against Russia via Ukraine. How many thousands of people are dying? The, the latest reports say around 15,000, and that could be a conservative estimate. Probably is a conservative estimate. And the number could continue to grow. So thousands of people are dying. Europe is in an economic crisis. I've talked about here in past episodes the fact that the European economy is really just committing suicide in order to try to destroy Russia. And we see that the euro is at the same level as the dollar for the first time in 20 years. So as if that weren't enough, people in Europe are now talking about the fact that there's going to be a gas shortage, so they're telling people to have cold showers. They're telling people to turn up the thermostat in their homes in, in the summer right now, and then they're, they're going to tell them to turn down the thermostat.
thermostat in the winter and people are going to suffer because they can't afford energy because Europe refuses to buy energy. Although at the same time, uh, it's incredible to see that the European Commission just criticized Russia and claimed that Russia is using gas as a weapon because Russia said, okay, fine. If you refuse to, to pay for this energy and continue to steal our assets by freezing our central bank's assets in dollars and, and euros, and if you continue to wage this economic war on us, fine, then we're not going to sell you our energy. So now the European Commission is accusing Russia of using gas as a weapon because Russia says, well, fine, we're not going to sell you our gas. So clearly the conclusion of that is that the European Commission, the European Union leadership, believes that Russia's energy belongs to Europe, belongs to the EU, because Russia is not selling it for free, giving it away for free, or at the low market value. Therefore, it's weaponizing the gas and oil that Europe says it doesn't want to buy. So while this is all happening, the US is, is instead of trying to stop that war in Ukraine, it continues to fuel the war with $50 billion of weapons, with the CIA on the ground, as the New York Times admitted. And furthermore, the U.S. is now trying to start a war with China. I mean, it really is beyond the pale. I mean, it, it's really, in some ways, inexplicable. The war hawks in Washington are really... They're really desperate, and I think it does reflect the fact that they can see clearly the rapid decline in the United States. That decline is increasing even further with the inflation, which continues to grow. And, I mean, at a certain level, there is... I, I, I don't want to say that, of course, all of the actions of these imperialists in Washington are, are irrational. There's a certain irrationality, but I think there... There is an element of irrationality that has to be considered even in a materialist analysis of all of this. And they truly are out of control. And now China is not playing around. The Chinese foreign ministry has repeatedly said, this crosses our red line. This is not tolerable. There are reports that they may consider, I mean, they're obviously not going to physically do anything to Nancy Pelosi, but I mean, who knows what the response will be, but China can't not respond. This is, this is how this escalation ladder works. And the U.S. is the one constantly pushing the escalation. And if China doesn't respond in some way, then the U.S. will say, see, China is, you know, it's a pushover. It's a paper tiger. And we can continue to bully it and support secessionism. So they're forcing China to respond at every single level, which is threatening, potentially escalating this into a full-on World War III scenario. I mean, it, it really is. It really is terrifying. But now that I had that mentioned, I, I wanted to also talk about other very important development, developments related to that. Because this past week, we also saw some historic meetings that haven't been getting a lot of coverage in Western media. And the first, I think, most important of these meetings is a meeting between Russia and Iran on July 19th. July 19th, by the way, is also the anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution. I'm going to talk about that a bit later in this episode. In Nicaragua, they just celebrated the 43rd anniversary. So I have some things I wanted to say about that. But 
It, before I get to that, I'm going to talk more about the situation with China and Russia and Iran and the U.S. So while the U.S. is waging this proxy war on Russia via Ukraine and start trying to start a war with China over Taiwan, Iran just hosted Russian President Vladimir Putin, and they had a very interesting meeting. Again, this stuff gets almost no coverage in Western media, although it's very important. First of all, Iran and Russia signed a $40 billion cooperation agreement for development of their gas and oil industries. And that was signed between Iran's state-owned state-owned oil company and Russia's gas giant Gazprom. And with Russian help, Iran is going to be uh, grow, expanding its operations in oil and gas fields and looking for also doing more discovery operations. And there's also discussions of building a pipeline. And in addition to that important $40 billion agreement that, that is showing the further energy integration of Eurasia, of Russia and Iran, and of course, China as one of the main purchasers of energy from both Russia and Iran. India also, although India, because of U.S. sanctions on Iran, it has been decreasing its imports of oil from Iran out of the fear of secondary sanctions. Obviously, China and Russia aren't they don't care about secondary sanctions because they're already sanctioned by the U.S. and their economies are big enough. That it's not a, that's not a huge deal. But anyway, so in addition to signing this $40 billion oil and gas agreement, Iran and Russia also dis discussed something that I have almost never seen mentioned in mainstream Western media, despite the fact that it is a game-changing economic um, development that could really shape the global economy in fundamental ways. And that is the so-called INSTC, that's I-N-S-T-C, International North-South Transport Corridor. And I know that's a long name, but it's extremely important. This is an agreement that goes back to 2000 in which India and Russia and Iran signed an agreement to create a trade route that challenges the Suez Canal route that is traditionally used in order to send goods to and from India and to and from Europe. So the way that the route typically works, I mean, it's kind of obviously hard to explain this uh, just by audio. It's easier to look at a map. But if you just look at a map of India, and then if you look at it going west off the coast of Mumbai, and then going through the Suez, and then up into Europe, you know, the Mediterranean, the Balkans, that is the traditional trade route. And of course, that's the way that India can receive goods from Europe and send goods to Europe, and by extension to Russia. And India and Russia are important economic partners. India and China, of course, have very contentious relations, and that's always going to be in this process of Eurasian and Asian integration. The conflict between China and India is always going to very, very much complicate relations. India has a very right-wing government. It is very pro-American, and it's very anti-China. So although India and Russia have very good relations and India has refused to impose sanctions on Russia over Ukraine and has continued buying Russian oil and gas and wheat, on the other hand, India and China, you know, they have border conflicts and the 
right-wing ruling party in India, the BJP and Prime Minister Andhra Modi, often uses China as a scapegoat, blaming all their problems on China. So that's a more complicated element of the, of the equation. But Russia and India have very close economic relations and political relations. And right now, in order for India to do trade, at least maritime, by a maritime route with Russia, it does, throw, does so through the Suez. But I mentioned this development of a new economic trade route that will have the time needed to send goods to and from Russia, from India, and that is the INSDC, the International North-South Transport Corridor. And in the meeting between Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi and Iran's uh, Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei and Russian President Vladimir Putin in Tehran, they discussed expediting the construction of a railroad that will connect the southern port on the southern border of in, of Iran with the northern border and the Caspian Sea. So the idea is Russia and, India, Russia and Iran, that is, are talking about expediting the construction of this so India can send its goods from, you know, Mumbai or like the West Coast to southern Iran and then we'll go on the railroad from southern Iran up into the north to the Caspian and then from the Caspian to Russia and other parts of Central Asia and and the Caucasus. So this this will circumvent the Suez Canal, which of course is is important because you know that Egypt has a lot of political leverage over that, and Egypt's government it tries to kind of play the West against Russia to an extent, but everyone knows that the Egyptian military is very close to the U.S. military, and if if there's some kind of crisis, Egypt's probably going to lean toward the West. So that removes that that potential factor in uh, you know the geopolitical equation. And furthermore, right now trade between India and Russia takes about six weeks to transport goods through the Suez. But instead, if if Iran expedites the construction of this railroad and Russia can can send and receive goods from India, it'll only be three weeks. It'll be half the amount of time. So that, that's a huge development that was also discussed in this meeting that Putin took to Tehran. And I think that people, you know, what's so crazy is that in the Western media, there's this idea that the, the entire world revolves around the U.S. and Europe, even though they're only 15 percent of the global population. And when they say the international community, they're basically only referring to the U.S. and Europe. And then they say that Russia is isolated in the world. Russia's isolated in the international community, ignoring the fact that Russia's, Russia has two very key allies that happen to be the two most populous countries on earth, China and India, each of which have 1.4 billion people. And then throw in Iran, that's 100 million, and throw in Russia's population. Between the four of them, that's 3 billion people. And then this isn't to mention the Central Asian republics and Pakistan, which, you know, Pakistan has complicated relations with Russia, but Pakistan has very good relations with China. So, I mean, anyway, obviously there's these internal contradictions, but the point is that, like, there's this fixation on what's happening in the U.S. and Europe and in Ukraine. And understandably, I mean, it makes sense why there's a lot of tension on the war in Ukraine. It's, it's tragic and it's horrible. And the West continues to fuel it and use Ukrainians as cannon fodder. 
and fight to the last Ukrainians who try to bleed Russia. But the world is continuing to move ahead and Asia is continuing to integrate despite all of this, while the West is hyperventilating over Ukraine and where it's going to get its energy from. So it, for me, it really is a stark comparison of this precipitous decline of the standard of living and massive crisis politically and economically in the so-called West, in the U.S. and Europe. And meanwhile, we see that Russia, China and Iran and to a lesser extent India, although those are complicated relations and Pakistan. I mean, these are all massive countries and they are moving ahead, full steam ahead with economic integration. So it really is another example of how, as I've talked about here in past episodes, the West has been basically sanctioning itself with these sanctions on Russia because it's destroying its top energy source for Europe. The U.S., of course, also has significant sanctions on Iran, which has very large oil reserves and the world's second largest gas reserves after Russia. And the U.S. has these brutal sanctions on Venezuela, which is the world's largest oil source of oil. So the U.S. has been forcing Europe and countries that are subordinated and allied to them to not buy their energy from Russia, Venezuela and Iran, which is committing economic suicide in Europe with these sanctions that have done more damage, frankly, to Europe than they have to Russia. And then now the U.S. and Europe are pressuring countries in Asia, not only China, Russia and Iran, but also even India, which, again, is a U.S. ally and is a member of Washington's anti-China military alliance, the Quad. But its economic relations with Russia are too important to sacrifice, given that Russia is much closer to India than the United States and Europe. And it makes much more sense to, to do trade with Russia. It's much cheaper. It's much more efficient. So the U.S. and Europe are actually incentivizing India to try to repair its relations with China, which, again, as I said, is honestly, I think, a kind of long shot. It's going to be that's going to be a very difficult relationship to parse. But the point is that instead of doing what would obviously, if you're from the perspective of a U.S. imperialist, if you want to cause the most problems in the region, what you would want to do is try to push you push India away from Russia and China and into the Western camp. And obviously they're trying to do that with Russia, but it's difficult. And they have done that to an extent with China, but by with, with these sanctions on Russia and telling countries around the world that basically they can't buy oil, gas, wheat, fertilizer, minerals, timber from Russia. It's basically forcing India to decide if it's going to go along with Eurasian integration or with the West. And even for these like right wing nationalists in India who are very anti-China there, they still have national interests as an economy, as a country. And some of them are saying, well, maybe we should start rethinking our relations here. The, I mean, it, it really is incredible. I, I have to say that we're in, a, in an incredible moment right now where Henry Kissinger of course, a notorious war criminal who has the blood of countless Chileans on him for the coup against Salvador Allende, who has the blood of billions, uh, not billions, of millions of Bangladeshis, millions of Bangladeshis after the U.S.-backed Pakistani genocide in Bangladesh. I mean, Henry Kissinger is now being seen as a dove. It's really crazy. The moment we're in is, is so deranged. 
And the policymakers in Washington from both major parties, Republicans and Democrats, they are so bloodthirsty and so out of control that even Henry Kissinger is writing articles and giving interviews saying like, look, guys, you should really calm down because we can't wage a war on both China and Russia at the same time. This is insane. So I honestly, it just, it blows my mind that this kind of stuff continues to happen, that the Biden administration, of course, I knew it would be awful. I knew it would continue many of Trump's policies, but they really are like pushing their foot straight down on the pedal, like pedal to the metal. Instead of trying to de-escalate, they're escalating as much as they can and escalating the conflict, not only in Ukraine, but pushing it right up to inside, not, not on China's border, inside China. Because Ukraine is not part of Russia. It's on Russia's border. It has Russia's largest border. Well, I guess Kazakhstan is Russia's largest border, but it has a massive border, land border with Russia. But the U.S. is not only doing something similar to, to China. I mean, Taiwan is part of China. It would be, you know, people sometimes compare it to Puerto Rico. I hate that comparison because Puerto Rico is a U.S. colony. It should be independent. We should support the independence movement in Puerto Rico. The people of Puerto Rico are brutalized by the United States. Taiwan is not a colony of China. Taiwan has been part of China for hundreds of years. It was colonized by Japan. In fact, Taiwan does have a colonial history, not by China, by imperial fascist Japan. But anyway, the point is that that's not the proper comparison. The proper comparison is California. Is China sending troops to train soldiers in California to prepare for a violent secessionist movement. China selling weapons to California to prepare to wage a war against the central government in the United States. And then China sending one of its top government officials to California and refusing to acknowledge the central government in Washington and treating California as a separate country. That's essentially what the U.S. is doing. That's a much better comparison. I mean, it really is insane. And of course, again, it's doing this at the same time as a proxy war with Russia. So anyway, uh, I wanted to talk about, well, actually, I'm going to save, uh, I was going to talk about Mexico, but I'm actually going to save that for another day because I'm, I'm going to talk another day about how the U.S. government is now threatening Mexico economically because Mexico nationalized its oil and lithium and the U.S. government has filed a formal complaint with the support of Canada claiming that this violates the neoliberal trade agreement agreement between the U.S., Canada and Mexico, which, you know, people called NAFTA 2.0. It was renegotiated by Trump. It's the U.S., Mex US Canada, Mexico uh, agreement. But it's just you, it's, people just call it NAFTA 2.0. I'll talk about that more in more detail in another episode because it's really insane. Uh, that's a whole other story. But um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respond to some of the questions that people have here. And I'll start with Aaron. Go ahead, Aaron. Hey, Aaron, you're muted. Um, Aaron, I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to go to, to say, oh, oh, no, no, go. I, go ahead. I got it. I got it. Sorry. I'm sorry. I got to get this. No worries. One of these days I'll get a Okay. So actually, uh, let me throw something real quick in about Mexico. And then I had one other thing, but, uh, 
I just was wanted to mention there's this, you know, basically like a hit piece in the New York Times a few days ago about the poverty Ambassador. rate in Mexico oh, okay. going up. Did you see that? It, no, it was. Uh, I, I saw uh, that it, the New York Times published this this piece hilariously attacking the U.S. ambassador, claiming that he's too he's too supportive of Mexico. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so Sal, he's that was engaging too much in diplomacy. <laughs> no, this was a this was a, the the here the 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 uh, article w- was titled "Mexico's leader says poverty is his priority, but his policies hurt the poor." I mean, it was just like a comically stupid hit piece and and basically and it basically what it said is well she's been just cash and but the social programs have uh you know poverty's risen and the social programs have uh and strangely enough he's wildly popular still with the mexican people it was just really funny uh uh the New York Times just, you know, they they can't handle it. But anyway, it, I think it was like Monday no. or Tuesday. It was, I think it was on Monday. It's, it was a, 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 but basically what they did is they compared because Mexico only reports economic, you know, like their GDP every two years, I believe. So they basically just compared 2018 to you know from the pandemic, and you know it was it was a. Silly piece, uh, but uh, interviews you did with uh, posted on YouTube. Those are hey, great. Aaron, Just actually, um, uh, you're, his you're cutting out a lot. So I, I don't know if that's me, Aaron. Can you hear me? Hey, yeah, yeah. Hey, you can, can you let hear me, me go. I'll, I'll give time. Hey, Aaron, did you wait? So, uh, okay, Aaron, are you there? Hey, Aaron. Sorry, everyone. Uh, I I don't know if I don't know if he was uh, cutting out a lot for everyone else or just me. Aaron, can you hear me? You can keep going, Aaron. I, I think it might be better now. I'm not sure. Okay, I guess. Sorry about that. Here's Sam. Hey, Ben. How's your hey, Friday going? Hello? Hey, yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Listen, how's your Friday going? Good, good. How about you? Yeah. Uh, I feel like the last two times I called you, remember what I kept saying? I, I kept telling you, is Amlo trying to get coup d'etat? Is Amlo oh. trying to get coup d'etat? I'm just saying, I feel like I'm calling it here. <laughs> I mean, every time we're already starting with the, well, we disagree with you, and Aaron pointed out there's a hit piece in the Times. This is how it begins, and then by next year, to, uh, next year this time, it's going to be Amlo the Dictator, Amlo well, the Oppressor. The thing is, they've been doing this for a while, though. I mean, the thing is, they just they don't have the, the ability to coup him, and also the, th- the other issue is that in Mexico, there's, according to the Constitution, there's a one-term lim- term limit. And AMLO didn't want to change that. So he only is going to be in power until 2024. So, I mean, they've been attacking him a lot, but they're probably just going to wait him out until 2024. 
Yeah, I guess, I guess they'll just wait to prop up uh, a neoliberal uh, guy. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I was gonna say uh, to your point about uh, Kissinger. Um, I kind of, ho- I kind of wish he would stop talking. On- and people are like, yeah, because he's a war criminal. And I'm like, no, he's he's correct. I mean, yes, he is a war criminal, but he is correct. But I don't want him pointing out the obvious. Like the, yeah. faster, <laughs> the faster we get to the fall of the empire, the better, in my opinion. I'm like, we need to end as an empire. And as a point, I think it was, I think it was like maybe the second time I spoke with you, there was a guy before me who had, who had, uh, who was talking about how he moved to Mexico. And, uh, I think you're in Nicaragua right now or? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and you were like comparing about like how the death rates are higher in the U.S. than in Mexico. And, and I just kept thinking to myself, I was like, you know, uh, Ben, let me ask you something. Just asking for a friend. Any tips on learning Spanish quickly? If one was to move to the South America, <laughs> where to move? Um, I'm genuinely asking you. Don't tell me watch Telemundo because it's not possible to focus. Yeah, well, in general, in terms of language learning, I mean, uh, obviously I speak Spanish the best, but I've also um, studied French, Arabic, and Chinese. And my I'm Arabic and Chinese. I speak. Huh? I, I spoke Arabic growing up, and your Arabic is still better than mine. Yeah, I mean, my Arabic is not great. I studied it in college, and my Chinese is very bad, but I've been trying to learn some Chinese. But um, in terms of, like, the languages I speak best are Spanish and then also French. And in general, but regardless of the languages, I mean, I just mentioned that because I'm interested in languages. I've studied a few, and I've and I found that, for me, the, the, there are a few tactics that are really helpful. The first one that I found the most helpful is learning lyrics to songs. Mm. That helps one, it helps learn vocab, which is really important. And then it also helps you to learn sentence structure and, and gives you like an idea of like how um, syntax works and how verb conjugation works. So in Spanish, I mean, obviously that's going to help you learn vocabulary, but also understand how you conjugate the verbs, right? Because Spanish is, is a pretty simple language. It's, it's very uh, logical. Everything is phonetically spelled there's a lot of borrowed words from English and Spanish. Uh, I think they share about 40% of their words with cognates. And the most difficult thing is the grammar. Um, especially there's a lot of very complex verb conjugation and you have to learn things like, um, there's two forms of the past tense, preterite and imperfect. There is the subjunctive. So uh, learning lyrics really helps with that because then you can see like the relationship of verbs to other um, you know, pronouns. And then an- another reason that that's really helpful is music makes it way easier to remember, right? So oh, yeah. when I was studying Arabic, like I was learning like a lot of songs from like Julia Boutros and like, uh, you know, uh, all like the, the Makawama, like the uh, resistance singers. <laughs> um, and uh, Feruz and... Yeah, I was just know. about to say, I'm like, I'm pretty sure, I was like waiting, I'm like, there's got to be a Feruz in there, there's nowhere you Yeah, got, of course. At, at the very um, least, an Omar Diab in there, but... Yeah, um, but uh, no, I just, uh, it, it's funny how, um, like, I'm thinking now, um, uh, I'm trying to remember now, uh, oh, it's been many years since I was... Um, What's the song by Julia Bot- by Julia Botros? Uh, I don't know. 
Ardihana el Sahar, something like that. Anyway, uh, like after that was, I I learned that song like like ten years ago. Yeah, and uh, I still remember part of it, and because the music helps remember it, right? Yeah. Jeez, I can't believe that. Now I'm gonna like, I gotta go like find my parents. It's old CD round. But to your point about, I wasn't. What was? Sorry, one second. And then, so music is good. Um, and then the another thing that I would recommend is, um, you know, like people use these apps, like um, I like Duolingo. Uh, Duolingo. Yeah. And I mean, I think Duolingo is fine. I don't have issues with it necessarily. But the issue with Duolingo is that it doesn't really teach grammar that much. It right. mostly like starts you with a lot of vocab. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally think, honestly, as someone who's used Rosetta Stone and Duolingo, um, Rosetta Stone has its issues too. But I actually think Rosetta Stone is a bit better. But obviously, um, unless you know people are like uh, doing something uh, uh, like uh, I don't know if I guess like I just say it, I don't care, like torrenting or. Uh, um, see, I, other I, forms. I had Rosetta Stone back when it first came out, and I'm like dating myself here with the CD-ROM type thing. And uh, I remembered, like, because I can I can speak and understand Arabic, but my reading and writing is like was minimal. And I remember, like, lesson one, it was like, "Hello, Marhaban," and I was like, "I've oh, never God. in my entire life heard anyone say Marhaban." I was like, yeah. it's marhabab, and I was like, and, uh, yeah, yeah, and I was like, my friends like, that's not how you say it. I'm like, if you said marhaban to somebody, they're gonna punch <laughs> you in the face because it's like you're talking <laughs> down to them. It's like, well, hello, good sir, you know. Yeah, fusha. Yeah, I mean, the di- the difference though in Spanish though is that um, Arabic's complicated because when you, I mean, I learned fusha in college, and obviously it's useless. But um, the thing about Spanish is what it, the way you learn it is the way you speak it. Okay. So it's not it's not like an issue in that case. All right, well, I'll give it a shot because I'm like I, I need an exit plan once uh once the empire falls. I'm like okay, just just plotting out a course. Uh, one thing I was just going to point out, I said I, I found it funny how the media had gone hard on on Biden, rightfully so, with like the fist bump and how he went to MBS, and it's like and it and I think it was um Jake Tapper had on uh, some guy who was like trying to defend Biden going there. And he's like, oh, and he, he kind of even said, it. he said, oh, well, you know, the only people who make the oil are Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and Iran, and none of those other countries are options. And I'm like, why is Iran not an option? I'm curious because they didn't follow the uh, nuclear agreement. No, they did. And I'm like, what is your logic behind it? Like, you're going to chat with a guy who's committing mass atrocities in Yemen, Chopping up journalists, but Iran, who we actually had a working agreement with, that your pre- your uh, the guy your former boss had worked so hard to get this deal with, eh, that's not an option. We can't do. That. I mean, still today, we're not back in the in the nuclear uh, agreement with Iran, and you're gonna go kiss Saudi Arabia's ass rather than. I mean, hell, he could have at least played the Iran card. Then the Saudis might have budged. But I just find it comical that we'll we'll go back to a to a brutal dictator. Not to say that Iran's not doesn't have their problems with their own theocracy, but. I mean, you're talking about human rights, you know, between Saudi Arabia and Iran. You're talking apples and oranges there. But I was just like, that's not an option, but kissing the ass of the guy who literally, you know, we're all focused about that one journalist. I mean, we always seem to omit the Yemen part, but that's where you're going with it. Like, you couldn't even at least threaten Saudi Arabia. Like, hey, if you don't give me the oil, I mean, I'm happy to get back in the deal with Iran. I just find it crazy that that's not ever an option. Not even the media brings that up. Well, I mean, I did a video and podcast about this. The thing is, the U.S. strategy is 
they're trying to get all of the Gulf regimes to ally with Israel. Most of them pretty much have already. Everyone knows that Saudi Arabia and Israel do have a working relationship behind the scenes. Yeah, now of course. Yeah, but of course, Trump, through the, the so-called Abraham Accords, got the UAE and Bahrain to officially normalize relations with parts of Israel. So the U.S. strategy is to try to get them all to unite, but not only against Iran, but also against China and Russia. And as I talked about, you know, at the beginning of this episode, China and Russia and Iran have become key allies and they're doing military exercises together. So, I mean, it's not a crazy strategy. I get what the U.S. is trying to do. And that's why they I, I don't think that they're never going to return to the Iran nuclear deal. It's dead because the U.S. has decided that they need to form this so-called Middle East NATO. That's what they're calling it. That's what the King of Jordan, who's like a U.S. puppet, Abdullah II, yeah. <laughs> he called it a Middle East NATO. And it's, of course, an anti-Iran alliance. And also in Iran's interest, I mean, the new president of Iran, Ibrahim Raisi, he's looking east. He's, he's looking east and north, right? Like, I mean, they're already in, in West Asia. So he's looking to China and Russia, Russia and other countries in the region to improve their relations and is not really so interested with the West anymore. So I think it's in both of their interests, they've decided that they're not going to return. Well, Iran would return to the deal if the U.S. would, you know, do things like actually lift the sanctions, if the U.S. would take the IRGC off its list of terrorist organizations and all that nonsense the U.S. has done. But, of course, the U.S. refuses to. So Iran says, fine, we have other options. That's the difference. They have other options. You think that an- their their anti-NATO strategy is, is up uh, – their Arab version of the NATO strategy is, is feasible long-term because – I mean, personally, I see in, in a country of Iran, Russia, China, like those are economic ties. I mean, you're talking about Gulf countries whose only export is oil. Like there's nothing else to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly the strategy and ways if it's going to work. I mean, I'm not sure. But the thing is, if you, you know, I mentioned the U.S. sanctions on Russia, Iran and Venezuela. Well, if the U.S. and Europe can control the Gulf region, then then they do have a, a major stockpile of energy. Obviously, they're not going to get the energy from Russia, Iran, and Venezuela. But, I mean, the U.S. has been trying to clearly push Saudi Arabia back in its camp. That was the real reason for Biden's visit. It wasn't, I mean, it, of course, it was about oil in the sense that they, they, they need Saudi Arabia to maintain stability in the global oil markets. It gets it to overproduce oil to drop the price of oil. But it's also it was about making making sure that Saudi Arabia doesn't lean too much to east in, you know, in an ally with Russia and China. So that's the U.S. strategy right now. And is it going to work? I mean, I don't know. But honestly, I think it could work. And, you know, this basically the U.S. is trying to divide up the entire world and this new Cold War and recruit all these countries. And clearly the alliance on the Western side is the U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia, Japan, South Korea. And they're trying to get all the Gulf monarchies to join them. And of course, you know, apartheid Israel is on that side. So then the other side would be China, Russia, Iran, Syria, probably Iraq, Pakistan, Maybe India. India is probably going to play both sides. Turkey is going to play both sides. Not every country is going to be firmly in one camp. I would say also, I, I was, I was going to disagree and say I think Egypt would try to play both sides. I don't feel like Egypt they would. Egypt definitely. 
Yeah. I mean, the thing about Egypt is Egypt actually has quite good relations with both China and Russia mm-hmm. and the West, of course. Egypt's the biggest recipient of military support after apartheid Israel, although Ukraine, I guess, now is the biggest of all. But yeah, Egypt, Egypt is definitely going to play both sides. So Egypt's not going to fit firmly in that camp. But the thing is, I mean, the thing about MBS is obviously he's a horrible criminal. I mean, not just the Khashoggi thing, although that's, that gets much more attention than what's more important is Yemen. I mean, that guy is responsible for 377,000 deaths in Yemen, according to the UN. I mean, that's completely inexcusable. He's a complete criminal. That said, I mean, MBS is not a complete U.S. puppet. He does, you know, he's independent. He doesn't just follow orders, and that's why Biden went. I mean, it's a complicated situation, and that's why the U.S. is afraid that parts of the Gulf may not firmly be in their camp. That's that's one of the reasons they're trying to enforce that discipline on the region. Well, hopefully, then I guess the uh, hope would be to try to get uh... – on Russia's side, Venezuela, and uh, I mean, I don't know where the new president of Colombia is at, but uh, you know, try to get up most of South America. Then <laughs> that would be the try to try to balance that out. Well, Colombia is definitely going to remain more in the U.S. camp, but probably lean toward a more independent position, like Brazil. Um, yeah, Brazil is going to become more and more independent, and Brazil is a very significant country. The largest economy in Latin America, the fifth or sixth largest country in the world in terms of population. So, yeah, I mean, the thing is that that's, this is the moment we're in, which is interesting, is that the U.S. is trying to divide up the entire world and Brussels. I mean, the EU, they're trying to divide up the world, but a lot of countries are refusing to pick one side. And so I think countries like India, Brazil, um, Egypt, these are very big countries and they're not just going to pick one side. They're going to try to Turkey, certainly. Yeah. I mean, so so Erdogan, you know, he's, Turkey's still a member of NATO, but Erdogan just visited Iran as well. So they're definitely trying to play both sides. Yeah, it was uh, Russia and uh, was uh, Turkey visited Iran, but and there was like they were they had talks about Syria and where it was going forward. Um, at least one. Yeah, day. they were they were interesting. I actually I was I was working on a, I'm going to do a video and podcast about this specifically about this. Um, I was reading the statements from the Iranian government from the website of Ali Khamenei, and it was interesting. I mean, if you read the statement between Iran and Russia, they were very friendly, and everything they said was very positive, and they were complimenting each other. If you read the statement between Iran and Turkey, it was much more, much more, um, you know, cool. Cool is not the word. Um, uh, like it's the opposite um, of warm. Like le- um, le- less tense than it was than it's been before. Yeah, well, yeah, certainly. But it was much um, much less friendly. I mean, certainly there were elements of it where they called for, you know, strengthening their relations and all that. But a few times, Ali Khamenei told Erdogan, he was like, uh, we are strongly against a further invasion of Syria. Syria's territorial integrity must be protected. We agree that the American occupiers need to be expelled, but but all all foreign occupiers need to be need to leave like very clearly saying that Turkey needs to get out of Syria. So it's it's a complicated situation. We'll see where that goes. I'm, I'm obviously not confident in Erdogan. I think he's probably going to invade again. Yeah. Uh, look, I'll get off the line because I'm sure there's more people waiting. But uh, next time I'll definitely hit you up on suggestions on uh, on singers. But anyway. <laughs> cool. All right. Here is uh, Omar. Go ahead. 
Hey, Ben. Hey, what's up? Um, well, I've been kind of uh, on the same kick as the previous caller about uh, thinking about an exit strategy. And in that, I've been um, listening to the news from Europe and specifically I zeroed in on Spain. Um, and I've been just hearing that because of the U.S. pushing European countries to shun Russia um, and because of the heat wave, uh, that combination the people in Spain are not turning on their ACs during the heat wave because of energy costs. And it's just unbelievable that they're letting themselves get um, bullied by the U.S. and and getting screwed over in all kinds of ways. And um, at the same time, there's this trend that I saw in Bloomberg where it said that Americans are leaving for Europe um, because of the housing crisis, they can't afford it, and the political atmosphere, the violence. And so you're going to have like this brain drain in the U.S., uh, and people just flooding Europe and probably other countries like Latin America. Uh, and, and it's just, I mean, this is just an, an imploding empire. Um, I don't know if you uh, follow um, La Base, uh, Pablo Iglesias Turrion, who started the Podemos party. Um, he, uh, he started this, uh, I guess, this kind of journalistic outfit uh, in Spain, and he, I've been following that a lot. He has really great um, contributors uh, and really great commentary. I was looking for leftists in in Spain, and I think I found I found them. And it's I don't know if um, you've ever interacted with him, but it would be really great to to see you uh, interact with him. I think like there would be a lot of synergy there. Um, yeah, but. I don't know if you what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, well, lots to say there. I mean, it is it's true that there's definitely going to be a lot of outward migration from the U.S. In fact, an interesting point that doesn't get talked about a lot. I mentioned this in an article I wrote um, a few months ago about Biden continuing Trump's brutal and anti-immigrant policies. If you actually go to the census, the U.S. Census website. If you look at net migration, which of course includes not only inflows, but also outflows, net international migration in the United States has been declining consistently in the past decade. It's actually at one of the lowest levels in, in decades. Because of course, we hear a lot of discussion, you know, especially like in the you know, conservative media, like Fox News about immigration to the United States. But there's also a lot of outward emigration with an E out of the United States. And by the way, a lot of those people leaving are immigrants themselves, people born in other countries who immigrated to the U.S. And things have become so difficult and expensive and also violent that they are moving to other places. So I think that's going to be a trend that continues. And, you know, you mentioned that I think it's true that a lot of people are probably going to go to Europe, um, which... No offense personally, I mean, people make their own decisions and there could be good factors, good reasons why, but I do think it's actually kind of crazy because a lot of, excluding the violence issue, which obviously is unique, very unique to the U.S., a lot of the economic problems are, are just as bad in Europe are going to get worse and are going to get worse in Europe, um, especially maybe not the housing issue as much, but definitely with rising costs of living and especially energy costs and inflation. I don't see that ending anytime soon. 
But in terms of Spain and the Spanish left, yeah, I mean, in some ways I do, I do respect Pablo Iglesias. I do know him. I've talked with him before. And he, he had this good show. He used to actually have a, a good show on um, Ispan TV, which is the Spanish language version of press TV of Iran, Iranian media. I think it was called Fort Apache, Fort Apache like Fort Apache. Um, and he had a really good show on there. Um, I think he made some really bad decisions as a, as a political leader in Podemos, like when he decided to join the current coalition government with PSOE and become like vice president, like their equivalent basically. But it was like a ceremonial position where he basically had very little influence. And then of course, people might know that Pablo Iglesias resigned formally, um, resigned from electoral politics when Podemos suffered an electoral defeat in the last regional elections. So, I mean, I think he has made some major mistakes politically. I mean, not that, you know, a lot of people have, no one's perfect, but yeah, I think his analysis is pretty good. And especially in terms of other people on the European left, I think he's a much better, much more sober analyst. And I think that partially explains the internal contradictions within the EU because of all the countries in the EU, Spain has been hurt really hard. It's up there with Greece and Italy that have been really hurt by the EU. You know, they talk about Southern Europe. Um, so ironically, the same kind of um, the same kind of imperialist exploitation that we see of the global north toward the global south, you even see that same kind of relationship at a less ser- at a less severe level inside the EU. And we see that Spain has been suffering from high levels of unemployment and in, in high levels of poverty and economic distress, largely because it doesn't have its own sovereign currency and because the EU is controlled mostly by Germany and the German Central Bank. Because the European Central Bank is based in Frankfurt, Germany. It's largely an extension of German banking interests. So... I mean, I think there are possibilities in Spain, although unfortunately I think Podemos kind of squandered a lot of those possibilities by joining this coalition government, which tainted their, their political, their political, um, you know, the people, the way people see them politically, because it associated them with the PSOE, which is a completely neoliberal party. So unfortunately, I think that's going to actually help strengthen the far right. And I unfortunately would not be surprised. It would be really sad, but I think I would not be surprised that the Vox party, the far right party, which is trying to bring back like this kind of Francoist politics, I would not be surprised if they do very well in the upcoming elections. So mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I don't think it's necessarily like, depending on what you're looking for, it's not like the worst idea ever. It, it's an interesting place and there are possibilities. But uh, yeah, I mean, the, Spain is going through a lot of the same problems as the U.S. Yeah. and in general Europe. And my worry is, in general, across the West, I think we're going to see the far right come to power in most countries in the, in the West. And this this war with Russia and now with China is just going to make that it's just going to accelerate the rise of fascism in a, in a way very similar to the 1930s, the way that the economic depression and then eventually, you know, World War Two helped fuel further, uh, further fuel the rise of these fascist movements. I mean, uh, if you look at World War One and how the left split over World War One, and you know the the countries where, especially Germany, where the left was destroyed and and the and large parts of the left supported the war effort, and then of course that gave rise to fascism. It, it's pretty scary how similar 
the situation is now in the West. And clearly the Democrats are going to be crushed in the midterms of November. Not that the Democrats are left-wing, they're clearly not. But I mean, just in the sense of the rise of the far right, it's obvious the Republicans are going to win the midterms. They're probably going to win the presidential election. It's probably going to be Trump again. And I would not be surprised to see Volks win in Spain. I think, you know, we might even see AFD rise in Germany because the left there, the Linka, has been really crushed in a lot of ways for a variety of reasons. We're going to see probably alternative for Deutschland, the far right party rise there. So I, not to scare you, not to be too pessimistic, but I actually think things are going to get pretty bad in the West, not just in the U.S., but in Europe, too. Yeah. I, what do you because I watched some speeches that he gave in the in the Spanish. I don't know if it's a parliament or Congress. Yeah. Probably, the probably Yeah. Yeah. And I have never seen any American elected speak uh, and, and hold his own and be that leftist, like in such a big venue. Like to me, the fact that that happened, that existed, even though it was squandered, like to me means that they're like at least the base, the, 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 the people who, you know, supported Podemos, they're there and there's more hope there, I think, than in the U.S. who like we have spineless uh, representatives, quote unquote, that can't even criticize like the squad can't even criticize our terrible foreign policy, uh, not giving Medicare for all during a pandemic. I mean, like, there's just no will here, no courage, no imagination. People are so propagandized here versus over there. Yeah, there might be a resurgence of the right, but people might be able to, you know, counteract it. That's just maybe my idealistic side. (laughs) But Well, is it more probable in Europe? Maybe, possibly, but I mean especially in a country like Spain, being realistic, there are, there is a sizable percentage of the population who would be down with fascism again. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget, I mean, not just in, in Spain, in many parts of Europe, there were fascist regimes and they had portions of the population that supported those fascist regimes, especially France. I mean, you know, the Vichy regime, there were a lot of collaborators and there still are those kinds of people in Europe today. Is it bigger than the left? I don't know. I mean, there is more of a left in Europe, but it's still not very big. They have a slightly more of a voice, and they do have some seats in Parliament in, in countries in Europe and, the, and in the European Parliament itself, whereas in the U.S. there's basically no representation in the formal political system, but it's still pretty marginalized. I mean, I have friends I really res- admire and respect in Die Linke in Germany who are in the Bundestag, in the Parliament, including, you know, one of the, the key MPs um, who is a friend of mine and, and a very good, you know, anti-imperialist socialist from the Die Linke party, Selim Dagdalen. And, I mean, her party has very little influence in German politics and increasingly less or, or decreasingly, has a decreasing amount of influence while the right wing, the far right, the AFD, the far right is increasing in influence. So... I mean, yeah, I guess I guess there are, I mean, there's possibilities everywhere. But uh, like I said, I mean, I, I, I personally am very uh, reticent about romanticizing Europe. I mean, I know European mm-hmm. politics pretty well. I've spent 
a decent amount of time in Spain, several months. Um, not a lot, but, you know, enough to kind of get an idea. And, like, there are certain things that are better than, than in the U.S., but if you, want, if, you want, if you wanted me to give you, like, a straight-up honest opinion of what I think is going to happen, I think it's much more likely that the, Franco, the neo-Francoists will win out. And I, I don't. I obviously think that's awful. I think that's horrible. I don't say that with any, you know, uh, um, joy. But honestly, if you look at the left in a country like Spain, maybe it's 15, 20% of the population. I mean, it's even less if you look at Podemos's vote share. And if you look at Vox, it's not very big either. But Vox is ascendant, and unfortunately, Podemos is on the decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's unfortunate. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, not to be pessimistic, but I think there are possibilities for change. And I'm not, I'm not saying that, like, I just totally write off the possibility for change in the West. But I think most of that popular energy toward the left is coming from the global South. Not just in Latin America, but parts of Africa, parts of Asia. And not, not to totally just discount the West and say, like, there's no hope. There is, but uh, it's not looking good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm from Mexico originally. And um, yeah, what concerns me about it there is just, I mean, that, like you said, AMLO's term is coming to an end. Who knows if there's going to be another AMLO. And it's going to probably be Ebrard, and he's going to take a significant turn to the right. Yeah. Well, on that note. (laughs) (laughs) All right, thanks. Well, thanks for calling in. Appreciate it. All right, um, so I'm going to take these last two questions, and then I'm going to wrap up. So here is uh, Olu. Go ahead, Olu. Hello, can you hear me? I can. How are you doing? Yeah, fine, thank you. Um, I just want to know, if the if the Republicans get back in power in 2024, do you think they're going to pop up, like start invading like all the Latin American countries that define them? Invade, no, but I think they will be even more aggressive in terms of coups and sanctions and those kinds of things. Definitely not. Not that, you know, the Democrats are that much better. But I do think that if you look at the rhetoric and not just the rhetoric, the actions of the Republican Party, especially because of their base in Florida, which obviously, I mean, the uh, Cuban-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans and Nicaraguan-Americans in Miami are a huge base for the Republican Party. They have become very outspoken in, in invoking the Monroe Doctrine. And again, Democrats have carried out very similar policies. Biden still recognizes Guaido as the imaginary fake president of Venezuela. But if you look at the Republicans, we saw that Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, Trump's, both of Trump's secretaries of state, Rex Tillerson and Mike Pompeo, all of them invoke the Monroe Doctrine. And by the way, I mean, next year is the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine. It goes back to 1823. This is straight up colonial, a colonial doctrine that goes back to, I mean, the British and French empires. This is the U.S. equivalent. And they've been repeatedly invoking the Monroe Doctrine. And in his book, I, was, I just read it through his book and I did a video and podcast about the Venezuela coup. John Bolton says repeatedly that China and Russia having relations with countries in Latin America is a threat. It violates the Monroe Doctrine. 
We saw that this Trump ally Republican congressman from Florida, from the north of Florida, Matt Gates, he also on the floor of Congress invoked the Monroe Doctrine after Argentina joined the Belt Road and signed agreements with China and Russia. So definitely they're 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 being very vocal and saying that we need to like recolonize Latin America. And of course, under Trump, we saw the coup attempt in Nicaragua in 2018, the ongoing coup attempt in Venezuela starting in 2019, the successful coup in Bolivia in November of 2019. So, yeah, I mean, they're not going to invade. I don't think they're not at that level yet. I mean, of course, the U.S. did invade Panama and did invade Grenada. That was a slightly different time. That was still during the first Cold War, but maybe they are that crazy. But I think they're definitely going to ramp up even further their operations in Latin America, because when an empire is in decline, the empire often is even more aggressive and violent in the region that it considers to be its so-called sphere of influence. And of course, since the 1823 Monroe Doctrine, the U.S. empire has declared Latin America to be its backyard. Joe Biden recently called Latin America the U.S. front yard. So I'm, I'm very worried about that. I think a lot of people are saying like, you know, look, the U.S. coup attempt in Nicaragua was defeated and Venezuela was defeated and Bolivia was defeated. Sure, they were defeated, but that's not the end. So as much as, you know, I do a lot of reporting on Latin America and the growth of the left and anti-imperialist movements. And I think that's going to keep growing. But I think also the U.S. aggression, especially in Latin America, is going to get worse. No, but I'm just, I'm just thinking that because um, the Americans are probably like focus, not focusing on Latin America at the moment because they're focusing on other things. So that's why you're, that's why you're seeing like a lot of socialist governments rising up and stuff like that. So I don't know if like they're just focusing on Africa or Europe. They just I, I don't know, but I think they they're not focusing more in Latin America. That's why, you know, you get you get to see like socialist governments. If that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's partially true, but not necessarily true. I mean, the U.S. has still been very active in Latin America, but I think that it's true that in general, over the past few decades, especially after the end of the first Cold War, the overthrow of the Soviet Union. The U.S. definitely put a lot more of its energy into the so-called Middle East and to West Asia, you know, with Iraq, also South Asia, with Afghanistan, also with AFRICOM spreading across the African continent. So in general, I think you could say that in the past 30 years, although there's been a lot of, of course, U.S. meddling in Latin America, constant coups and stuff. I mean, you could say that maybe that the U.S. did have its resources more spread across West Asia and Africa, and now they're going to focus more on Latin America again. But at the same time, I mean, the U.S., I mean, Biden just took these trips to apartheid Israel and Saudi Arabia. We see that the U.S. is now moving a lot of its troops to the Pacific region. It's expanding its presence in Japan and South Korea, also with, with Australia, potentially with the Philippines. So, I mean, Latin America is always kind of a constant. And in general, that's been across U.S. administrations, regardless of whether they're Democrats or Republicans. Now, I think for Europe, for Europe, it's going to be different, and especially for France. France is being much more aggressive in Africa now. And with, with China's partnership with a lot of countries in Africa, I think Europe is going to be very aggressive in Africa. No, but didn't China and Russia, China and Russia, they like, 
did they not have like military bases in Nicaragua or something? They've done something. They've done something well, there, didn't they? China only has one foreign military base, which is in Djibouti, and it's part of a UN anti-piracy effort. So China doesn't really have a foreign military footprint. Russia has, I think, like six or seven foreign military bases. They don't technically have a military base in Latin America, but they do have they have military alliances and agreements with Venezuela and with Nicaragua, but they don't have military bases. But Nicaragua has an agreement that goes back several years. It's actually not new that allows a few hundred Russian troops, not a lot, a few hundred, which is nothing compared to the 55,000 U.S. troops in Japan, for instance. And there was a, a news report recently that was very hyperbolic claiming that, you know, Russia is expanding its military presence in, in Nicaragua. Actually, what happened is that Nicaragua renewed an agreement that it already had with Russia that was several years old and it was due to expire. And they renewed it and they slightly modified it. But again, it only allows a few hundred Russian troops, which is nothing compared to what the U.S. has. Okay. Okay, one more question before I leave. Yeah. Um, do you think um, the whole, you know, the COVID with Biden, do you think that's like completely BS? They just, they, they something's, I think something's happened to his mental health, so they trying to like cover it with this COVID thing, if that makes sense. Because they usually, because, you know, if someone has COVID, yeah, would they not like put like a video message to say that, you know, to see, so that, to show that he's fine and stuff, like he will put a video message, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it's a good question. I mean, maybe, honestly, I think, like, COVID, a lot of people have just, like, have so normalized COVID that getting COVID doesn't seem like a big deal anymore. So I don't think that he would necessarily put out a video. But there is speculation, which might be true, that Biden made this really weird comment a few days ago where he kind of hinted that he has cancer. And it wasn't exactly clear if it was, like, some kind of skin thing that he had that he got rid of or if he has cancer now. So it was like a weird throwaway comment that, that he, he makes a lot of these weird comments, obviously. And there's speculation that maybe they tried to, they're trying to like uh, draw attention away from that. But I think actually, I think it's probably true that he has COVID. Just like in the U.S. at least, COVID has become like so normalized that and so many people have gotten COVID, like the majority of people in the U.S. have gotten COVID. So it's not even seen as a big deal anymore. All right, cool. Thank you so much. Have a nice day. Bye. Yeah, thanks for calling in. Cool. Uh, I'm going to take one more question here from uh, Rudy, and then I'll wrap up. Go ahead, Rudy. Hola, then. ¿Qué tal? ¿Qué tal? Todo bien. <laughs> um, so somebody asked how you get better at Spanish. My secret was drinking, going out with friends while learning Spanish, you know, in an institute. Um, I thought that served me quite well. Yeah. I mean, in general, like... Immersion, like chatting with people, hanging out with people who speak the language definitely is very good. But my, what I always say about immersion is like immersion is really helpful, but it, immersion is much better if you already have like, like some stuff to work with. Right. So like, um, true. like my brother like has visited a few times and is trying to learn Spanish, but he doesn't really have much to start with. So every time he's immersed, it's just like overwhelming. So I always tell them, like, learn a lot of the basics first. And then once you know the basics, immersion is way easier. Because, like, if you can understand half of what someone is saying, you can try to figure out the other half. But if you don't understand anything, it's hard to pick up anything. You know what I mean? 
Very true. I I went to Spain understanding a little bit because I spoke French already. So then basically I added O and R to everything. Um, But my question was, how are regular people in the know-how, in in the army spheres, um, how sane people are reacting to the U.S. that's trying to wage a war with China that it already calculated that it was going to lose. And how are people in the, in the U.S. military responding? Yeah, like people who know this thing, who... Is there... Are there people saying, like, that's crazy? Oh, you, you mean, you the, mean like, the military the, leadership? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, to be fair, I mean, I'm certainly... no. Everyone knows that I am not in any way a fan of the Pentagon. I'm extremely critical of U.S. military. But to be fair, some of the military leadership is a little more clear-eyed and level-headed than the political class in Washington, who many of whom you know have no military experience, and for them it's just like all ideological. So there have been some warnings from top military officials, and especially if you look at some of the research papers that have been done by Pentagon-backed institutions like the RAND Corporation, They have been warning that this is insane. The Rand Corporation published a report a few weeks ago that warned that the U.S. Pacific strategy is not going to work because the U.S. is trying to spend $20 billion putting a series of missiles to surround China in the so-called second island chain, which includes like Japan and Okinawa and the Philippines. And uh, the Rand Corporation published an article, a report, saying that this is not going to work because they can't get those countries to agree to host the missile systems. And we've also seen that there have been people like in the upper brass of the Pentagon warning about this policy on Taiwan specifically, because they understand that one, if they, if there's a war with China, it's going to be a complete disaster because the Pentagon has been doing war games exercises. And every time they do a war games exercise with war, seeing like what, what, what it would look like if there was war in the South China Sea, the U.S. would lose that. Because also the other factor, too, is that China is defending its own, it's defending its own territory. And obviously defending your own territory gives you the, the home advantage if there's a war. And the other country that's attacking you, which would be the U.S., has a disadvantage. So according to the Pentagon's own war games exercises, the U.S. is going to lose. So there have been people in the Pentagon warning about that. But unfortunately, in Washington, I mean, a lot of the stuff is being driven by ideology, by the political class and by corporate profits. So the fact that they might lose is not even a, not even a concern to them, honestly. Damn. So the train is just straight up loose. That's what I'm afraid of. I mean... I unfortunately don't see any hint that, that there are people more level-headed who can try to stop it. I mean, we were talking earlier about how we're in such an insane situation right now where Henry Kissinger is being portrayed as like the dove, like who's warning about war against the war. So if even Henry Kissinger is now seen as like not hawkish enough in Washington, that's a really scary sign. Yeah, we are in one. And I will that I I I believe like you that 
if we have any solution, it's going to come from people who really have sort of more direct skin in the game. And that's going to be in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia. And I see it in Africa. There's more and more, as the French are having to, I guess, um, are, as the French are getting more desperate and being are being sort of forced to be more aggressive in Africa, there's more uh, aggressive reaction to what the French have done originally. And then like, at this point, it's gonna be it's gonna be really difficult for the French to, um, I guess, you know, do any more than they have been doing. I think there's definitely more incentive. Um, they're trying to trade more with Algeria, but they're also in a weakened state, in a more weakened state. So I don't know what they're gonna be able to do, but I definitely see that the change, if it's gonna come, it's gonna be from the sort of global south. Yeah, I, I really agree. And in terms of Africa, yeah, I mean, especially in West Africa, where obviously French kind of neo-colonialism is most active. And we saw, for instance, the coup in Mali. What was interesting about the coup in Mali is I was concerned, and a lot of people were concerned at first, that, you know, this is like this Western-backed coup. And I think it was Western-backed. The, the military officer who oversaw the coup, who led the coup, was being trained by the U.S. military and by the French military when he did the coup. Yep. But what well, now that he's in power, he's actually been much more independent than I think the West planned. And that's also true for Guinea. There was a coup in Guinea, and it was very clearly like an anti-Russia, anti-China coup. But once again, like a mm-hmm. lot of these leaders, they come to power, and they're not like the Western puppets the West wants them to be. And then this is obviously true in Sudan as well. Like, you know, Sudan has had basically like two kind of ongoing coups now. And although Sudan has like partially normalized relations with apartheid Israel and, you know, um, has in some ways like helped out the West, it's also not the total puppet that the West wants it to be either. So in general, I agree that although maybe like a lot of these countries are not necessarily joining like the resistance, you know, they're not joining necessarily with, this kind of um, alliance that's been that's been created between China and Russia and Iran and Venezuela and Cuba and and uh, Laos and um, Eritrea and Zimbabwe, like that's like the kind of anti-imperialist alliance. They're part of this group at the UN called the Group of Friends in Defense of the UN Charter. At the same time, mm-hmm. we are seeing countries like Ethiopia, Sudan, Mali, South Africa. They're they're playing both sides. And they're they're having they're having an independent policy, which is is good for them. I mean, obviously that's good. Like that's what they should do. So I agree. It, for them, I mean, after hundreds of years of, of European colonialism, it seems like finally there's an opportunity to be a little more independent. And I, I hope that continues. Well, in my home country of Senegal, that's where the the president of the CDAO is from, and he's got. A lot of pressure down um, in the streets as well. There's a sort of a young challenger. Uh, I guess um, our, he'll be our Paulo, and he's um, basically running on the left of the the head of the CDAO, who's been sanctioning Mali, uh, sort of on behalf of the French. Um, and so, if he moves, if he goes, and Alassane Ouattara of like um, Ivory Coast people are also going after him and it's a it's a sort of an international move it's sort of like a pan-africanist move that is attacking these guys that are seen as 
sort of um, puppets of friends. So if those guys lose their powers, it's going to be really um, difficult for France. But last point is, um, I do also agree that fascism is coming to Europe. And what I saw was just like really criminal stuff, similar to what the Democrats do. So if you have um, a, a critique of Biden deporting people, they say, oh, well, go and vote for Trump um, in France. Whenever there's like a critique from the left, the media will do all it can to if there's any critique that that's legitimate. They just say, oh, well, it's um, a right wing critique. They blame they basically called the Gilets Jaunes a right wing movement, which in one way feeds the right wing. Mm-hmm. And then in the other way also weakens the um, movement against the status quo. And so ultimately they're pushing, they're strengthening the right wing in order to weaken the legitimate opposition. And so, um, yep, it's fascism. Yeah, France is another good example of that. I mean, uh, and it's incredible because Jean-Luc Mélenchon, I mean, there's criticisms of him, of course, but he is a pretty popular person, a politician. He came very close to, uh, he was in a very close third place, very close to potentially um, running against Macron in the election after beating up, or after becoming very close to beating Marine Le Pen. And of course, exactly what happened, like you said, uh, anyone who criticized Macron and his neoliberal policies, this banker, was portrayed as a secret Le Pen supporter, ignoring Melanchon and his huge base. So that's the strategy. And clearly it's backfiring hard across the West because we're seeing this lurch to the far right. And it's, it's I hate to end on a pessimistic note, but just being real realistic about it. It's, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of joked, but not entirely jokingly, that, uh, you know, for hundreds of years, Europe was in the Dark Ages. And when Europe was in the Dark Ages, Asia and also parts of Africa were, you know, like some of the biggest economies in the world, especially India and China had some of the biggest economies in the world while Europe was in the Dark Ages. And it does kind of seem like it's heading back to that. <laughs> So uh, I want to thank everyone who joined. This was a great discussion. I know uh, apparently like my mic is pretty bad. That's, there's, the issue with this app is that uh, it's on your phone. So I'm trying to, my headphones broke. So I'm trying to, I'm using different headphones. I'm going to try to buy better headphones with a better mic. But I wish I could just use a mic for my computer. But anyway, I'm going to try to figure out the audio issue for next time. As always, it's a real pleasure. Thanks everyone for joining. I had a great conversation. And if you want to listen to this, this will be available on Spotify and iTunes. And I'll see you all next time, next week. Thanks a lot.